um, in all of your perfection uh, could love us. Father, we thank you for your redeeming love. We thank you for your love that has transformed us, that continues um, to transform us because we're never going to be good enough. And so, Father, my prayer for all of us is that we just stop trying to be good enough and we keep our eyes on you because you are good enough and you tell us that we are yours and that we are loved by you. Father, thank you for your love um, with arms stretched out that bore our cross, that paid our debt that we could never pay, that reconciled us um, to you through love. Father, help us to love you and to love one another in return. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you guys uh, this morning. Before we get started on the message, I just want to bring your attention to a new section. It's in the monthly bulletin that we have for you here. There's a section called Giving at Grace Life. Each month, what you'll see is you'll see some historical average data there. Then you'll also see what we did the previous month as far as average income and expenses. Uh, so you kind of have an idea of tracking what's going on. And if any of you ever have any questions about our finances, uh, anything like that, uh, we have a pas- uh, on the pastor and shepherd team, we have a shepherd who's overseeing the finances. That's Matthew Dennis. And you can email him at Matthew at gracelifesrq.com. It's really, really easy. It's his first name and then gracelifesrq, which is our website, dot com. And uh, he'll be able to give you any information you, ha- you need about our giving. But I just wanted to, we just wanted to start putting that in the bulletin there for you so you can have an idea of what it costs to do church and uh, how we're doing paying for it. Uh, that's about as much as you'll ever get from me talking about money, so you better have enjoyed that while you could. <laughs> All right. I'm Joe Davis, one of the pastors here. We're continuing with our series on 2 Corinthians. Today I'm very excited about sharing with you the idea of reconciliation about how we become reconcilers. Before Christ, we are at odds with God. We're at odds with people. We're at odds with a lot of things. But then after Christ, we have this ability to become reconcilers. So I'm going to read the passage today. It's from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And what Paul explains here, he simply says, look, the love of Christ controls us. All that have died, he's died for all of us who have sinned. He died for our sake, so we might no longer live for ourselves. And once that happens, he begins to reconcile us to himself. And in that process, we become reconcilers. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16 for you a little bit later, but I just wanted to get started with some historical context of what's going on here. Okay? These look like they're out of order, but that's okay. That's all right. I'm a pro. I can handle it. We'll just go without it, all right? Historically speaking, as we've talked about before, there was a tremendous conflict of culture with the Corinthian church and their city. And Paul expresses his biggest desire for the church is to address this idea that this church had been in years of conflict. There had been conflict between Paul and the Corinthians. 
right? We talked about that. There was a time when they were starting to turn away from what Paul had taught them, and, and they were, there was a conflict there. There had also been conflict between Corinthians, those, those Christians in Corinth, and Jewish leaders, Judaizers, who wanted these new Gentile Christians to become temple worshipers, and there was conflict there. There was conflict in the city between those Christians in that church and pagans who didn't like the gospel. And there was conflict because this was creating disrest. There was disrest among Jewish people and these Christians, and there was uh, unrest among pagans and Christians. There was a conflict in the church with city leaders in Corinth. And so this church has been surrounded by conflict almost its whole existence. And there had been this natural desire to reconcile with those around them. And some of the ways that they tried to reconcile, we see this in 1 Corinthians, and actually Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians. The first thing they tried to do to reconcile the differences around them is they they tried to compromise theologically. Well, that didn't work, and they were still hated. Because what was going on is people wanted them to just totally give up this idea of the gospel, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No, give up that. And the Corinthians said, what if we mesh them? What if we say he is a way, a truth, and a life? No. So there was still conflict, even though they had theologically compromised. At some point, they even sacrificed their loyalty to Paul so they could be reconciled with those around them. And that didn't work, and they were still persecuted. And then there was a time where they tried to blend in morally. They began to have these immoral worship services with the pagans, and they started doing things and and saying things that tried to make themselves look more like their surroundings. That didn't work. All it did is made them feel dirty. So there was theological compromise, there was uh, loyalty compromise, and there was moral compromise, and none of these worked. But now we see in 2 Corinthians We see that their repentance has begun to take hold and reconciliation had actually begun to take place between Paul and them and between them and themselves. And Paul's aim here is he wants to see that continue. He wants to see reconciliation flourish. Remember, there was a man, we talked about this a few weeks before, there was a man in that church who had sinned grievously against Paul and others And he had been disciplined, and he repented, and he came back. And Paul said, you are to treat him as though nothing had ever happened. Bring him back into your fold. Forgive him, because the burden he will carry if you continue to cut him off is too great for him. I want you to reconcile with him and receive him back. So that's what's going on historically right now. And this is why Paul uses that word reconciliation about four or five times in that passage. So with that in mind, let's talk about the theological part of this. I'm going to read for you first uh, verses 14 through 16. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Then he goes into how we are new creatures in verse 17. So I want to talk about the real source of reconciliation. See, there is a need for reconciliation. But reconciliation is needed, and this is where people get confused. 
Reconciliation is needed not because there exists conflict between men. That's actually the conflict between men is a result of the true need for reconciliation, which is the divide between men and God because of sin. All conflict arrives from the fact that man is in conflict with God because of sin. Every political conflict, every military conflict, every economic conflict, every emotional conflict, every family conflict is because there is a divide between man and God because of man's sin. So the need for reconciliation is because of differences with God, not one another. And conflict with men is a direct result of conflicting with Heavenly Dad. And Paul reveals that the source of reconciliation was the gospel. Matter of fact, he says the love of Christ controls us, the work of Christ in the hearts of men, that work that makes us new creatures, old things being passed away, all things become new. So I want to talk about the idea about how the love of Christ controls us. You guys know one of my favorite passages in Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in or trip over. How does this play out with the idea of what we as humans need the most? That being our love affair with our own decisions and our own free will. Think about how much better our relationships with men would be if we were controlled not by our own decisions, but by the love of Christ. Can you imagine how much better your family relationships would be? How much better your friendships would be? How much better your marriages would be? How much better our churches would be if we were not controlled by the desires to uh, fulfill our own free will, but we were controlled by the love of Christ? So let's talk about how the love of Christ does this for us. First of all, it controls us. It also regenerates us. We are a new creation, it says in verse 17. What does it mean when he says old things are passed away? It means he puts to death the old man and he births a new one. So in other words, the one that was in conflict with God no longer exists. That man is gone and there is a new creature, a new creation that has been reconciled to God. When that happens... Our sins are not counted against us. That's what our passage today says. Since that man who committed those sins is dead, he doesn't exist anymore. And this is the key ingredient to reconciliation with God, that we are created new from what was before unreconciled. Matter of fact, in this passage right here, Colossians chapter 1, 19 to 22, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the love of Christ, first of all, how does the love of Christ control us? It regenerates us. It makes us new. You know what else it does? The love of Christ reconciles us to God. I love this verse, Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. For while we were enemies, 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It doesn't say, for while we were enemies, but when we started making a little progress, we started doing a little better. We started going to Grace Life every Sunday, and we started going to Deep End a little bit. We started going to Grace Life Recovery. We started treating people a little better. We were making progress, and then God said, okay, good job. Now I'll come since you've shown me that you're willing to listen, I'll reconcile with you. No, that's not what the scripture says. It says, while we were enemies. While we were, the other verse says we were hostile. While we are hostile, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul loves this word, doesn't he? It's all over the place. And so the love of Christ reconciles us to God, even in the midst of us not wanting anything to do with it. So much so that God says, I know you don't want anything to do with reconciliation with me, but I'm going to give my son. He will die for you so that in the midst of your hostility towards me, he will create a new creature that you weren't even wanting to be in the first place. That a creature that will be reconciled to me. The old one has passed away and we will no longer hold those sins against you. But here's where the exciting part comes. The love of Christ makes us reconcilers. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago at uh, Grace Life Recovery about one of the great things I love about recovery ministry is when relationships are reconciled. It's the most exciting thing for me to watch. In verse 19, this is what Paul says in that passage. He says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Guys, think about this. He takes people who were enemies and hostile to God, people who wanted nothing to do with reconciliation to God, and he takes them, makes them new creations, and he turns us into the instruments of reconciliation for those around us. I mean, it's kind of like taking a flat tire and putting it on a car and expecting it to run right. But somehow God takes that flat tire, makes it brand new, throws it on the car, and it runs smooth. I mean, he makes us into reconcilers. Those who wanted nothing to do with reconciliation, those who wanted just one thing, to follow our free will, our own desires, our own mind, our own emotions, our own passions, he transforms us into people who are now being able to be used by him to reconcile others to himself. So that's the theology. Now let's talk about the devotional part of this, what reconciliation really looks like. First of all, I'm going to tell you the things that don't be distracted by. See, this is part of the problem. Men seek reconciliation by outside things that distract the church from its true ministry of reconciliation. Which, by the way, always seems to make the gospel secondary in importance. It's our natural instinct to try to bring about reconciliation upon our own philosophy, our own intellect, our own efforts. And here's some ways that there are attempts to achieve reconciliation this way, which, by the way, are fruitless. In fact, when we try to achieve reconciliation by some of these things, it creates more division. You'll see what I mean in a minute. Don't be distracted by man-made religion. I mean, if we can just forget about our different beliefs, we will all be reconciled, right? 
That hasn't worked for tens and thousands of years. Religion is not served to be a reconciliatory power. You know what else can distract Christians from the ministry of reconciliation? Politics. If we can just get our political philosophy in power, we'll all be reconciled. If we can just get our guys on the Supreme Court, we'll all be reconciled. If we can just pass this law or overturn that law, if we can just legislate what we think is moral and right, somehow we will be able to produce reconciliation because everyone else will see we're right once it's the rule. Legislating morality will not produce reconciliation between men or between men and God. Which politician do you think can bring the country together? I wrote in a parenthesis, LOL, next to that. (laughs) Here's what history has told us. The key to reconciliation was not President Reagan. It wasn't President Clinton. It wasn't President Obama. It's not Ted Cruz. It's not Hillary Clinton. It's not Bernie Sanders. It's not Donald Trump. It wasn't Gary Johnson or Jill Stein. It's not the GOP or the DNC. So don't get worked up. None of those people can bring reconciliation. None of them. None. That's why we don't talk about it except for here right now. We don't talk about it much at Grace Life because politics is a distraction to our ministry of reconciliation. Now, this is another one I want to share with you. This one, I want to give you a little bit of explanation when I put this up there. Here's something else that we can get distracted by as Christians that we think can bring reconciliation. That's social justice. Now, listen to what I'm trying to say. Although social justice, talking about helping those who are without, you know, helping those who are poor and in need and distress, although that can be a resulting work of the love of Christ controlling us, right? We understand that. Social justice can be a result of the Christians being controlled by the love of Christ, living sacrificially, living in peace and those things. Let me tell you something. Social justice is not the seed of reconciliation. In fact, I will tell you that social justice without the gospel is just powerless busy work that will not bring about reconciliation. Social justice without the gospel just feeds our guilt or other people having a sense of expectation, entitlement. Reconciliation does not start with social justice. It might end there, but it doesn't start there. According to Paul, reconciliation occurs through the work and control of the love of Christ, the gospel. Reconciliation starts and ends with nonpartisan brokenness and the gift of faith. It is miraculous and supernatural. The ministry of reconciliation isn't always about giving, it's about the gospel. Again, I want to clarify. Those things we think of as social justice, they can be a result of reconciliation, but not the seed of reconciliation. Do you understand what I'm saying? It outflows from the gift of faith, which is a miracle. So let's talk about what the ministry of reconciliation requires us to be as a church, as Christians. I want to start with a story about Paul and Onesimus, and I've preached on this before, but Onesimus was 
a guy who was indebted to a guy named Philemon. He owed him money, and Philemon was gracious enough to let him work it off. And Onesimus stole from Philemon and ran away. Stole from him and left. Kind of betrayed. Philemon was trying to help him, and Onesimus ran away. And by God's sovereign grace, this guy who was unreconciled with Philemon and probably many other people, by God's sovereign grace, runs into Paul. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus, leads him to Christ, and Onesimus becomes a child of God. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon. He says, listen, that guy Onesimus that stole from you, Remember Onesimus, or Philemon, I led you to Christ. Remember that? Well, that guy that stole from you, he is now one of us. He's a brother. And to show you how much he's changed, I'm sending him back to you. And whatever he owes, I will pay it. I, Paul, in writing this with my own hand, I will pay it. And you see here what happens? Onesimus is now able to be reconciled to Philemon because of what? The gospel. And so just like Paul with Onesimus, here's the first thing that we have to be. We have to be initiators. See, we often want others to take the first steps in reconciliation process, don't we? Well, once you show me, then I'll take the risk. But the scripture says, as Paul gives the example, as Christ gave the example, who when we were what? (coughs) Enemies? We were hostile to God while we were hostile. God says he saves us. If we are going to carry out the ministry of reconciliation, we must be the initiators. We often want other people to take the first step, but that is not the example that Christ gave us, is it? You know what else we have to be if we're going to be reconcilers? It ain't free. We're going to have to be cost bearers. We need to be willing, just like Paul was, we need to be willing to pay the price for others to be reconciled to God and then to themselves and other people around them. We have to be willing to be cost bearers. And the other thing that we have to be, if we're going to be reconcilers, we have to be advocates. This is where things like social justice can come in. They aren't the end-all, be-all. They are the result of first being initiators and cost bearers and then advocates. To be reconcilers, we must be willing to take up the interest of those We seek to reconcile. We need to take up their interests spiritually. We need to take up their interests emotionally. We need to take up their interests physically. See, here's the temptation that we have as Christians. We like to try to reconcile people to God from arm's length. Don't we? I'll just give some money here and you you do it for me. Those people are kind of annoying. (laughs) We like to reconcile people at we like to keep them just, uh, look, I, I want you to be reconciled, but I ain't got time for your drama. Arm's length. I want to be reconciled, but you don't smell quite as good as I do. Or I want you to be reconciled, but you're a little bit crazy. As I look at the drum kit. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. See, We have to recognize that if we're going to be initiators, cost bearers, and advocates, we cannot do reconciliation from arm's length. We have to be willing to get dirty. But getting dirty is pointless if you don't come with the first ingredient, the first seed, which is the gospel. What is the point of having a church that does all these things if it doesn't preach the gospel? It won't be a church of reconciliation. 
<coughs> Paul makes it very clear that the ministry of reconciliation begins and ends with the gospel of Christ. And the example is this. Christ reconciled us to himself. He initiated. He bore a cost on the cross. And he advocates for us before the Father every day. That's what we should do. This is what a church that is active in the ministry of reconciliation looks like and acts like. So my simple question for you this morning is this. Can you point to anywhere in your life where you are an initiator? Can you point to anywhere in your life where you are a cost bearer? Can you point to places in your life where you are an advocate? And if you are those things, does the gospel permeate every step? Or is it a political philosophy or a religious philosophy? For us to be able to be people who reconcile others to God and others to each other and themselves, we must start with the gospel. And the example of Christ, who is, rec- according to Paul, reconciling the world to himself through the work of his son on the cross. Dad, we're just so thankful that you have reconciled us to yourself. We're thankful that even while we were hostile, we had no interest in seeking reconciliation with you. You initiated it. Then you bore the cost on the cross. Then you became our advocate. Heavenly Dad, we ask that you now would give us the ministry of reconciliation. Commingled with the gospel, that you would make us initiators. You would make us cost bearers. You would make us advocates.